I feel like I've just stepped into an Isha drawing. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of September's book Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, published in 2020. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves and discuss the first half on the second Friday of the month and the second part on the last Friday of the month. I'll be sharing your thoughts and mine, asking loads of questions, discussing ideas, making predictions, and we'll decide what type of person we'd recommend the book to, if at all. I'd love you to read alongside. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. You can audible or just listen to the podcast since I will be summarising what happens. But be aware, there will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I love reading your comments. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to the end of part three, that's page 124, if you're reading alongside. The novel starts with an unnamed narrator who's in a huge building. Large tides are predicted to fill it and and the prediction goes awry and the tide is much greater and the narrator is soaked. But the tide gives them a marble finger. Quote, the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. The narrator wants to, quote, explore as much of the world as I can in my lifetime. And as such, they are documenting the vast, quote, house. So it's called a house all the way through the novel. The structure of the house is that it has three levels and the lower halls are what's known as the domain of the tides and the upper halls are the domain of the clouds. And between the two, which are largely uninhabitable, we have the middle halls, which are the domain of the birds and of men and, quote, the beautiful orderliness of the house is what gives us life. The narrator sees, quote, the other looking from a window. They wave, but he does not see the narrator. At the moment, it's feeling very Isha-esque. If you know the artist Isha, his fantastical pictures of vast, interesting rooms and buildings. And a quick Google of Piranesi. Um, I found out that he's a Roman and he imagined these vast castles and dungeons or plans of these vast castles and dungeons. The capitalised nouns like ceiling, floors, walls remind me of Ishiguri's technique in Clara and the Sun, where he makes really important objects in Clara's confined world capitalised as well. It has the feeling of a very small and defined environment for the narrator. The dates in the book are marked by the presence of an albatross. Quote, Entry for the tenth day of the fifth month in the year, the albatross came to the southwestern halls. Albatrosses are lucky to seafarers and should never be killed. And those of you who have been following the podcast know that I recently read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Here, the albatross represented the innocence and beauty of God's creation. And according to Wikipedia, they are the most legendary of all birds. Someone bearing a burden or facing an obstacle is said to have, quote, an albatross around their neck. Continuing the narrative, the narrator describes the 15 inhabitants of the house that have ever existed. Only the narrator and the other are living. Quote, The other believes that there is a great and secret knowledge hidden somewhere in the world that will grant us enormous power once we have discovered it. What this knowledge consists of, he is not entirely sure. He continues, The other and I are searching diligently for this knowledge. We meet twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays to discuss our work. The other organises his time meticulously and never permits our meetings to last longer than one hour. 
It reminds me a little bit of Titus growing with all these clearly defined roles. And the book seems to be an example of ekphrasis, which is a dramatic verbal description of a work of art. I tried in vain to see if I could find a plan of this, quote, house. I did find Pyrenees' remarkable floor plans, but none of them had, quote, 960 halls to the west, 890 halls to the north, and 768 halls to the south. I think that would be a very, very large plan. The narrator is confirmed male, quote, there are living in the world as I've already explained, only myself and the other, and we are both male. He describes the other 13 inhabitants as one biscuit box man to the concealed person, which is basically a skeleton stuck uh, next to a plinth and a wall, and then persons 5 to 14 are the people of the alcove. And then there's also a dead monkey. And he worries that, quote, when I feel myself about to die, ought I to go and lie down with the people of the alcove? There is, I estimate, space for four more adults, though I'm a young man and the day of my death is, I hope, some way off. I've given this matter some thought. Uh, the narrator does remind me of Piranesi wandering through one of his imaginary buildings. He's certainly very precise and scientific. Uh, more on that later in the podcast. He keeps three notebooks. One contains... A description of the tides and the times. Two is a list of the statues he's discovered. And three is a journal. And this is the tenth of his journals. The dates start concretely, 2011, 2012, which kind of takes you into the modern world. But then they become more specific to the narrator. For example, the year I discovered the Coral Halls. And I think it's interesting that he's moved from this kind of external date keeping to his own internal method of date keeping based on personal remembrance of events. He does explain it later why he's done this. Quote, In accordance with the first system, I have named two years, 2011 and 2012. This strikes me as deeply pedestrian. Also, I cannot remember what happened 2,000 years ago, which made me think that year a good starting point. According to the second system, I have given the year's names like the year I named the constellations and the year I counted and named the dead. I like this much more. It gives each year a character of its own. This is the system I shall use going forward. Pages two and three of his journal, interestingly, have, quote, gaps where pages have been violently removed. I've puzzled over the reason for this and tried to imagine who might have done it, but as yet reached no conclusion. So this is one of our key questions, I think. His favourite statue is of her fawn with fingers over his mouth. Quote, he seems to say, be careful, but what danger there could possibly be, I have never known. I dreamt of him once. He was standing in a snowy forest and speaking to a female child. Obviously, a reference to Tumnus the form from Narnia. But how could he remember Narnia? He meets the other, who seems to be an authority figure and has a, quote, shining device, which I'll interpret as a mobile phone. He says he wants to research the narrator and ask him what he remembers. And the narrator describes how majestic albatrosses arrived at the halls and how he provided nesting materials for their egg, which has now hatched into a fledgling. The narrator goes on to describe the drowned halls and how he fell and was miraculously caught by the statue of the trampled man. The narrator believes a flock of birds warmed him of a storm. Quote, 
This experience led me to form a hypothesis. Perhaps the wisdom of birds resides not in the individual, but in the flock, the congregation. I've tried to think of an experiment that would test this theory. The problem, as I see it, is that it is impossible to know in advance when such events will occur. And so the only viable course of action is months, more likely years, of careful observation and meticulous record keeping. Unfortunately, this is not possible just now, since so much of my time is taken up by my work with the other. I refer, of course, to our search for the great and secret knowledge the other performs a ritual to summon the spirit of quote Adi Damaris another big question who is this Adi Damaris sounds like it could be a modern sounding name of some kind Quote, the ritual is a piece of ceremonial magic by which the other intends to free the great and secret knowledge from whatever holds it captive in the world and to transfer it to ourselves. So far, we have performed it four times, each time in a slightly different version. The other says, I'm going to summon the spirit of Adi Damaris, a king, long dead, someone who possessed the knowledge, or some of it at any rate. I've had success calling on him for aid in other rituals, notably for... He stopped abruptly and for a brief moment looked confused. I've had success calling on him in the past. He finished. Intriguing. This doesn't appear to work, this summoning. So the other says, quote, I feel like I should be addressing all this to some sort of, some kind of energy, something vital and alive. It is power that I seek and therefore I should be speaking these words to something that is already powerful. Does that make sense? Yes, I said. That's pure and easy. At least he's called Piranesi by the other. We don't actually know what his name is yet. The other continues, but there isn't anything powerful. There isn't even anything alive. Just endless dreary rooms, all the same, full of decaying figures covered with bird poo. He fell into an unhappy silence. I have known for many years that the other does not revere the house in the same way I do, but it still shocks me when he talks like this. How can a man as intelligent as him say there is nothing alive in the house? The lower halls are full of sea creatures and vegetation, many of them very beautiful and very strange. The tides themselves are full of movement and power, so that... While they may not exactly be alive, neither are they not alive. In the middle halls are birds and men. The droppings, of which he complains, are signs of life. Nor is he correct to say that the halls are all the same. They vary a great deal in the style of their columns, pilasters, niches, apses, pediments, etc., as well as in the number of their doors and windows. Every hall has its statues, and all the statues are unique. Or if there are any repetitions, they must occur at vast distances, as I have yet to see one. There was, however, no point in saying any of this. I knew that it would only irritate him further. What about a star, I said. If we perform the ritual at night, you can address the invocation to a star. A star is a source of power and energy. So I'm thinking perhaps it's a novel about appreciation, how the world can be so incredible to one person, yet a drain to another. But I'm not sure. Anyway, the other is excited about directing the ritual to a star, and Piranesi describes a perfect room, 20 kilometres from the first vestibule, but says he doesn't have the shoes to take him since they wore out. The other wants him to find out which stars the room faces. In particular, he wants a fixed bright star. Incidentally, the other is always immaculately dressed. The other says he will get him shoes so that Piranesi can do his research. Piranesi goes on to describe the room. Quote, it has only one doorway and no window. I only saw it once. It has a strange atmosphere that is difficult to describe precisely. It is majestic, mysterious, and at the same time full of presence, like a temple. And he explains that he needs shoes because 
quote, the path to the 192nd Western Hall lies through the 78th vestibule, a region subject to frequent flooding. Just now it will be dry, but the tides bring up debris from the lower halls and scatter it throughout the surrounding halls. Some of the debris has jagged edges which can cut a person's feet. It is not good to have bleeding feet. There is a danger of infection. A person must pick their way carefully through the broken marble. It is possible, but laborious. It will take time. If you read Clara and the Sun alongside me in July's book, perhaps you will feel many interesting similarities. These are no spoilers if you haven't read it, but we've got these capitalised nouns that I've already mentioned. Pyrenees trying to make sense of his environment, a bit like Clara trying to make sense of hers. And we've also got the other, who's a bit like the mother, very much an authority figure in this instance. And we've also got this magical thinking, just as Clara had, those birds leaving signs, being magically caught by the statue of the trampled man as well. Continuing the narrative, the other leaves him a box of shoes. They're described like modern trainers. He says, quote, My feet felt beautifully cushioned and bounceable. Piranesi goes on to relate all the items that the other has given him over the years. And he says, quote, It occurs to me to wonder why it is that the house gives a greater variety of objects to the other than to me, providing him with sleeping bags, shoes, plastic bowls, cheese, sandwiches, notebooks, slices of Christmas cake, etc., etc., whereas me, it mostly gives fish. I think perhaps it's because the other is not as skilled in taking care of himself as I am. He does not know how to fish. He never, as far as I know, gathers seaweed, dries it and stores it to make fires or a tasty snack. He does not cure fish skins and make leather out of them, which is useful for many things. If the house did not provide all these things for him, it is quite possible that he would die, or else, which is more likely, I would have to devote a great deal of my time to caring for him. That's just brilliant. Anyway, Pyrenees visits all the dead to see if any of them are named Adi Damaris, and none of them respond, since they're dead. And then he journeys to the 192nd Western Hall, only to be spooked by the utter darkness. He falls asleep to the sound of the sea, and then he wakes to see a full moon cast its light on all the statues that since that moment have been too dark to see. And we've got this wonderful description, quote, The statues on the walls were all posed as if they had just turned to face the doorway, their marble eyes fixed on the moon. They were different from the statues in other halls, they were not isolated individuals, but the representation of a crowd. Here were two with their arms about each other. Here, one had his hand on the shoulder of one in front, the better to pull himself forward to see the moon. Here, a child held onto its father's hand. There was even a dog that, having no interest in the moon, stood on its hind legs, its front paws on its master's chest, pleading for attention. The rear wall was a mass of statues, not neatly arranged in tiers, but a jumbled, chaotic crowd. Foremost among them was a young man who stood bathed in the moonlight, elation in his face, a banner in his hand. I almost forgot to breathe. For a moment I had an inkling of what it might be like if instead of two people in the world there were thousands. What a beautiful and haunting description. Again, this word ekphrasis, this beautiful description of, of an artwork, in this case statues. I love that dog very Narnian. If you've ever read The Magician's Nephew, you will remember a city called Charn, where there's all these statues, and it just reminds me of that. As the moon declines, he records the stars, and the narrator has a revelation. He sees the function of the house in a new way, and this is really important. 
quote, I realise that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unravelled, a text to be interpreted, and that if ever we discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. The sight of the 192nd Western Hall in the moonlight made me see how ridiculous that is. The house is valuable because it is the house. It is enough in and of itself. It is not the means to an end. More on this topic later. It's fascinating. And it's a bit of a comment on art and life, I think, although possibly contentious. Continuing on, he passes the 88th Western Hall where he finds 47 scraps of paper that refer to a, quote, minotaur. The rest of the papers are hidden in herring gulls' nests, so he needs to wait until they fly away because they tend to attack him. He decides they are not the work of, quote, the other. And stupid question here, but could they be his notes? He did say some pages of his diaries were missing. But then you'd think that he would recognise his own handwriting. But maybe he's suffering from some kind of memory loss? If we go back to the beginning of the book, he does say, quote, There are gaps where pages have been violently removed. I've puzzled over the reason for this and tried to imagine who might have done it, but as yet have reached no conclusion. Anyway, continuing on, he meets with the other and recounts the 192nd Western Hall to him. Quote, the statues are its most remarkable feature, I mean, other than the single door and the no windows. The moonlight picked out one statue in particular, the image of a young man. He seemed to me to represent the virtues of... And then he's interrupted. Don't bother with all that. You know I'm not interested in statues. Tell me about the stars, said the other. What could you see? I will show you. I opened one of my star maps and placed it on the top of the empty plinth. So the other is not interested in what he has. He is only interested in what is far away, the unobtainable... And if you read The Moon and the Bonfire with me in March, you'll recognise this characteristic an eel only wanting to know about what is in the distance, not what is right under his nose. The other says he will go there himself to perform a ritual. Quote, you establish what constellations can be seen at different times of year. And at that point, Piranesi reveals his, quote, revelation. He says... Quote, we must cease our search for the knowledge. When we began, we believed that it was a worthy endeavour, deserving all our attention, but it turns out that it is not. We should abandon it straight away and, in its place, establish a new programme of scientific research. And the other gets very angry at this point and states three reasons why he definitely should not give up and should continue the research. One, humanity did great things with the knowledge before it was abandoned in the name of progress, and we have to get back to it for humanity's sake. And the second thing he says is we'd no longer be colleagues, so our Thursday and Tuesday meetings would have to be abandoned. And three, he says, I've said this all before, there are gaps in your memory. Quote, you never forget anything about the labyrinth. That is why your contribution to my work is so valuable. But you do forget other things, and of course you lose time. What? Piranesi says, startled. Time, you're always losing it. What do you mean? You know, you get days and dates wrong. I do not, he said indignantly. Yes, you do. It's a bit of a pain, to be honest. My schedule's always so packed. I come to meet you and you're nowhere to be seen because you've lost a day again. I've had to put you right numerous times when your perception of time has got out of sync. Out of sync with what? With me, with everyone else. With everyone else. Who is everyone else? Piranesi doesn't question this. And the other is playing mind games to subjugate poor Piranesi. 
Anyway, continuing on, Piranesi resolves to check his memory against his past journals, and he assumes that his memory is correct and the other's memory is not correct. He writes a letter on the pavement saying that although he's lost confidence in the hypothesis, he will continue to help the other with his scientific experiments. He meets the other, quote, absentmindedly turning over some small metallic objects in the pocket of his jacket. Possibly money? And the other asks if he's seen anyone else. And Piranesi states there might be in far-reaching corners, but he hasn't seen anyone alive. And now I'm thinking, is the other using Pyrenees to try to discover what this, quote, house is for? For example, an object like Stonehenge, by allowing a subject unversed in the modern world and science, perhaps he will stumble upon the secret. And if so, where did Pyrenees come from? Was he born in the house? Very strange. Or is the author poking fun at me for trying to unpick a riddle that doesn't really exist? The other asks Pyrenees to promise not to talk to anyone else in the labyrinth and that if he does see someone else, he should hide. And Piranesi gets upset by this. He says, quote, Oh, but think what an opportunity will be lost if I do that. The 16th person will almost certainly possess knowledge that we do not. He will be able to tell us about the distant regions of the world. The other looked blank. What? What are you talking about, the 16th person? I explained about the 13 dead and the two living and how someone knew would be the 16th person. I've explained this many times. The other can never seem to keep the important information in his head. I agree that the 16th person is rather a cumbersome designation, I said. We could, if you prefer, call him 16 for short. My point is that 16 has information about the world that we do not know, and therefore... No, 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 interrupts the other. You don't understand. It's really important that we keep as far away from this person as we can. He paused and then said, You see, Piranesi, I've met this person, this person you call 16. What? No, I exclaimed. Then there really is a 16th person in the world. Why did you never tell me this before? This is wonderful. This is a cause for celebration. No. He shook his head dolefully. No, Piranesi, I know that this means a great deal to you, and I'm sorry to have to break it to you, but this is not a cause for celebration. It's entirely the reverse. This person, 16, means me harm. 16 is my enemy, and so, by extension, yours too. I love the characterization of Piranesi and the other. Piranesi is so meticulous and naive, and the other with his constant no, 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 no's and never being able to retain important information in his head reminds me of a schoolmaster who's come to his wit's end. It's a very, very funny contrast between the two characters, and it's very subtle humour, and I really love it. Anyway, could this 16th person be the Minotaur? The paper notes did refer to a Minotaur. And the other does describe Minotaur-like qualities in 16. Piranesi says, quote, When 16 arrives, I can talk to him and explain that you're a good person with many admirable qualities. I can demonstrate to him that the attitude of hostility he holds towards you has no reasonable foundation. The other smiled. How like you, Piranesi, to try and find the good in the situation. Unfortunately, in this case, it can't be done. This is why I didn't want to tell you about 16. You imagine that 16 can be reasoned with, but unfortunately, that's not the case. 16 is opposed to everything we are, everything you and I think is valuable and precious, and that includes reason. Reason is one of the things that 16 wants to tear down. The other says he met 16 only yesterday, but then rushes off with his shining device before explaining... Piranesi updates his person log to include 16, who is, quote, hostile to reason, science and happiness. Is this book a metaphor for God and man? Man being Piranesi, desperately thinking he can use science to understand the world, but in fact there is 
the other, this godlike figure who knows all and is actually directing man's fate, in which case this book could be seen to be anti-science and pro-religious. What do you think? I could be wrong in thinking that. (laughs) It definitely makes you think this at this stage. Is 16 an evil snake like the one that Eve found? And perhaps the other's interest in the 192nd Western room, the room with only one door and no window, is the fact that he wants to trap 16 there. Who knows? Hopefully we'll find out. The other enters the first vestibule and there are eight massive statues of minotaurs. And this has to be an entrance, right? I mean, there's 16 horns and 16 represents the minotaurs, surely, maybe? Possibly. As he explores the vestibule, he smells petrol. That's strange. And here's, quote, a sort of vibration and dashing noise. Cars? And then he hears two voices and finds crisp packets and a note asking for directions to a statue of an elderly fox teaching squirrels. He writes a response thinking that, quote, these two people could still be alive. And then we go on to the next chapter, The Prophet. Piranesi meets an elderly university professor. He's just standing there in this first vestibule. He tells him that the biscuit box from The Biscuit Box Man used to be in his study. And he mentions his students. We've got Stan Ovenden, Sylvia D'Agostino, Val Ketterly. Quote, a charlatan. Must be the other that Piranesi is talking about. And... And this is what he says, quote, For all the grand intellectual manner and the dark penetrating stare, he hasn't an original thought in his head. All his ideas are second-hand. He paused a moment and then added, Actually, all his ideas are mine. I was the greatest scholar of my generation, perhaps of any generation. I theorise that this, he opened his hands in a gesture intended to indicate the hall, the house, everything, existed. And it does. I theorise that there was a way to get here... And there is. And I came here and I sent others here. I kept everything secret and I swore the others to secrecy too. I've never been very interested in what you might call morality, but I drew the line at bringing about the collapse of civilization. Perhaps that was wrong. I don't know. I do have a rather sentimental streak. He fixed one bright-footed, malevolent eye on me. We all paid a terrible price in the end, he continues. Mine was prison. Oh, yes, that shocks you, I imagine. I wish I could say that it was all due to a misunderstanding, but I did all the things they said I did. To be perfectly honest, I did quite a lot more that they never knew about. Although, do you know, I rather liked prison. One met such fascinating people. The old man says how the house was made. Quote, Once, men and women were able to turn themselves into eagles and fly immense distances. They communed with rivers and mountains and received wisdom from them. They felt the turning of the stars inside their own minds. My contemporaries did not understand this. They were all enamoured with the idea of progress and believed that whatever was new must be superior to what was old, as if merit was a function of chronology. But it seemed to me that the wisdom of the ancients could not have simply vanished. Nothing simply vanishes. It's not actually possible. I pictured it as a sort of energy flowing out of the world. And I thought that this energy must be going somewhere. That was when I realised that there must be other places, other worlds. And so I set myself to find them. And I did. I found this one. This is what I call a distributary world. It was created by ideas flowing out of another world. This world could not have existed unless that other world had existed first. Whether this world is still dependent on the continued existence of the first one, I don't know. And then Piranesi reasons that this old man cannot be 16. Quote, 
The other had said that Sixteen was wicked, so it was possible that Sixteen would lie about who he was. But as the old man talked, I became more and more certain that he was telling the truth. He was not Sixteen. My reasoning was this. The other had described Sixteen as being opposed to reason and to scientific discovery. This description did not fit the old man. The old man was as passionately fond of science as we were. He knew how the world was made and was eager to pass that knowledge on to me. The old man says that, quote, great and secret knowledge has passed away from the building. And he continues, quote, imagine water flowing underground. It flows through the same cracks year after year and it wears away at the stone. Millennia later, you have a cave system. But what you don't have is the water that originally created it. That's long gone, seeped away into the earth. Same thing here. He says that the consequences of staying in the house are, quote, amnesia, total mental collapse, etc., etc. Though I must say that you are surprisingly coherent. Poor James Ritter could barely string a sentence together by the end, and he wasn't here half as long as you. Ultimately, the man came to tell Piranesia that someone is looking for him and that he will be giving him copious directions to find him. The closer 16 gets, the more dangerous Ketley will become. Ultimately, the man has come to tell Piranesia that someone is looking for him, and we don't know who that is yet. He explains how Ketley, who is the other, brought him to the house. Ultimately, the man has come to tell Piranesia that someone, who we're going to be calling 16, is coming to look for him. Quote, 16 is not looking for Ketley, he's looking for you. 16 has asked me how to find you. Now, while I have no particular wish to oblige 16, I have no particular wish to oblige anybody. I'm all in favour of doing Ketley an ill turn. I hate him. He spent the last 25 years slandering me to anyone who would listen, so I shall give 16 copious directions to get here. Minute instructions. He says, the closer 16 gets, the more dangerous Ketley will become. And the man gives Piranesi permission to kill him if need be. And in the next chapter, Piranesi reflects on the man as if he's almost a Jesus-like figure. Quote, the prophet explained the creation of the world and told me other things that only a prophet could have known. I took time to study his words carefully. There was a great deal I did not understand, though this, I expect, is usual with prophets. I took time to study his words carefully. There was a great deal I did not understand, though this, I expect, is usual with prophets, their minds being very great and their thoughts following strange paths. I do not intend to stay. I am only passing through, he said. From this I understood that he inhabited far distant halls and intended to return there immediately. So is the author making a comment on how a lack of knowledge can inevitably lead to religious ideas? Piranesi reflects on his encounter. In particular, he is baffled by the man, or the prophet's, assertion that, quote... You know I don't regret refusing to see you when you asked me before in that letter you wrote to me. Piranesi has no memory of writing a letter to this man. Piranesi meets the other, and the other warns Piranesi that 16 may, quote, infect you with madness that puts you at risk. You see that, don't you? There's a danger you might attack me. In fact, it's very likely that you would. 16 will almost certainly try to manipulate you into hurting me. And then there's the whole question of your dignity as a human being. You would be in this degraded, mad condition. It would be very humiliating for you. I can't imagine that you would want to go on like that, would you? No, I said. No, I do not think that I would. Well, he said, and took a deep breath, in those circumstances, if I find you are mad, then I think it's best if I kill you, for both our sakes. Oh, I said, this was rather unexpected. We have another reaction entry, this time the other's declaration that he may, under certain circumstances, kill me. And he feels he's had a very lucky escape. 
Piranesi practices hiding from 16. And then Piranesi discovers some journals that he has written in, but has forgotten he has written in. And the dates on the journals have been doctored by possibly someone else. But we actually find out that they've been doctored by himself. They describe how a man called Arne Sales, possibly the old man, invites some of his PhD students to Perugia in Italy, and they befriend a local postgraduate student called Giussani. Quote, On the evening of the 26th of July, Arne Sales invited Giussani and his fiancée, Elena Mariatti, to a dinner party at Casal del Pino. During dinner, Arne Sales talked about the other world, which is a place where architecture and oceans were modelled together, and how it was possible to get there. Elena Marietti thought that Arne Sales was talking metaphorically or else that he was describing some sort of Huxleyan psychedelic experience. Then after the party, Maurizio Giacini was never seen again. And then ten years later, when Arne Sales was convicted of kidnapping another young man, the Italian police reopened the case of the missing Giacini. And these words are his writing. He gains comfort in the statue of the fawn and he resolves to read his journals to answer two pressing questions. One, to learn more about the people who have lived and two, to learn more about his madness. He then falls into this kind of Smeagol-inspired Lord of the Rings split personality where he questions himself. Listen to this. Do you trust the house? I ask myself. Yes, I answer myself. And if the house has made you forget, then it has done so for good reason. But I do not understand the reason. It does not matter that you do not understand the reason. You are the beloved child of the house. Be comforted. And I am comforted. He reads about Sylvia D'Agostino, who's a poet and a filmmaker. And her strange films are described in that ecphatic way again. And she ends up as Arne's housekeeper after doing an anthropology doctorate with Arne as her supervisor. Her film, The Castle, is very reminiscent of Piranesi's house. Quote, The camera meanders around various enormous rooms, presumably in different castles or palaces. We cannot be seeing one building. It is simply too vast. The walls are lined with statues and puddles of water crowd the floor. When Arne Sales learns of her friendship with a doctor called Olstead, he demands she leave her job in a jealous fit. And she refuses, and then mysteriously she goes missing. And then we have an account of James Ritter. He was locked up in Arne's spare bedroom and was discovered by D'Agostino. And the hospital say that he suffered pneumonia, malnutrition, dehydration and bipolar disorder. And we've already seen a touch of this bipolar disorder with Piranesi in that previous quote. Ritter insisted that, quote, he had only been at Arne Sale's house in Wally Range for brief periods. Most of the time he had been at a different house, a house that contained statues and where many of the rooms were flooded by the sea. Most of the time he appeared to think that he was still there. On several occasions, while he was in hospital, he became very agitated, saying that he needed to go back to the Minotaurs because the Minotaurs would have his dinner. Despite being put on medication to control his delusions, he continued to insist on this story of a house with a flooded basement and statues intriguing i recognize that house maybe piranesi is sharing in this same delusion and that's the end of part three which is takes us to halfway so some very interesting questions to come up why were the pages of the journal removed who is this adi damaris should we as the reader be trying to unravel its secrets of the house remember Quote, if we ever discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. Who is 16? Who is this strange character that the prophet wants to find? Will Piranesi basically escape from this trap? 
some very interesting ideas to come out of the book. We've got this very scientific thinking from Piranesi and the importance of evidence. Quote, since the world began, it is certain that there have existed 15 people. Possibly there have been more, but I am a scientist and must proceed according to the evidence. We have this interesting specificity of number from Piranesi. Quote, 960 hall to the west, the 890th hall to the north. He's very rigorous. And we've also got some meticulous note-taking. Quote, I write down what I observe in my notebooks. I do this for two reasons. The first is that writing inculcates habits of precision and carefulness. The second is to preserve whatever knowledge I possess for you, the 16th person. I keep my notebooks in a brown leather messenger bag. The bag is generally stored in a hollow place behind the statue of an angel caught on a rose bush in the northeastern corner of the second northern hall. This is also where I keep my watch, which I need on Tuesdays and Fridays when I go to meet the other at 10 o'clock clock on other days i try not to carry my watch for fear that the seawater will get inside and damage the mechanism there's a very very interesting fourth wall moment when piranesi addresses us the 16th person he says quote and you who are you who is it that i'm writing for are you a traveler who has cheated tides and crossed broken floors and derelict stairs to reach these halls or are you perhaps someone who inhabits my own halls long after i am dead And I think that this is going to be the key to this novel. A key question will be answered by that little phrase there. I think we're going to actually, as the reader, be part of the solution to this strange, cryptic novel. Perhaps we are the 16th person. How would that work? I need to think that through. I think it was very interesting at the start, these splashes of the modern world coming into this very ancient architecture the dates, and the mobile phone, the shining device. And I mentioned this revelation that the narrator has after witnessing the room. Let's look at that one more time. Piranesi says, quote, I realise that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unravelled, a text to be interpreted, and that if ever we discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. The sight of the 192nd Western Hall in the moonlight made me see how ridiculous that is. The house is valuable because it is the house. It is enough in and of itself. It is not the means to an end. This is very meta. The narrator or the author is saying that answers to what is occurring in the book would only diminish the house. It's also perhaps a reference to Piranesi, the real artist's fantastic drawings. They do not need to mean anything. Art does not need to say or mean anything. Life does not need to say or mean anything. This also means he can spend his time on, quote, a new sort of science. I'd like to now share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Shuggy Bane. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Here's some of my favourites. Elise said, Of Shuggy Bane, it exposes the realities of the shocking depths of poverty with vivid characters whose weaknesses were both credible and compelling. Douglas Stewart's affection for his characters are palpable and his skill as a writer undeniable. And Beata said... Quote, this is not an easy novel to follow with a raw depiction of alcoholism and the destructive impact it has. It is the disease, but it is also the place, Glasgow in the 1980s. After Mrs Thatcher's regulations that closed down the mines and left thousands of people unemployed and destitute, the district scheme where the Baines live is the place that can offer nothing but hostility and a lack of prospects. And Peter at the reading desk 
wrote, I would highly recommend this book, especially for readers who enjoy deep character studies, a challenging background and human character with observational insights that are off the charts, all brought to life with wonderful writing that has been widely recognised as it is the winner of the Booker Prize for 2020. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Pyrenees in two weeks, that's on the 24th of September, October's book will be all about 2,666 by Roberto Bolaño. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Piranesi at the next episode. See you then. Mm-hmm.